itself. Tank. Hmm. It's interesting how military lexicon enters all of our current language. And I was reminded during the uh, recent uh, resignation or planned resignation of Tony Blair, many of the British, uh, um, shall we say, opinion analyst types that were uh, evaluating Blair, who we'll talk about in a second, uh, were recommending that people reread George Orwell's uh, famous uh, essay about uh, politics and the English language, and I'll have to bring it in because I have a copy of the book, and it uh, is well worth reading from time to time. It's about how language uh, is perverted by uh, elites to brainwash the public. In any event, of course, Gray Matters has always been interested in uh, disinformation and propaganda, and uh, yes, beware of uh, those experts who are from those think tanks, uh, because they are often funded by um, corporations uh, with hidden agendas. And uh, the recent emergence of the fact, for instance, that ExxonMobil uh, has funded uh, anti-global warming, anti-climate change research uh, to the tune of $14 million is very interesting because the media will present this as a, a debate uh, in, in the area of the word balance. Uh, of course, Fox News uses the phrase fair and balanced, uh, which is hardly the case. But much of the American public are led to believe, for instance, that scientific debates um, are like political debates, that there's two sides to every question, regardless of uh, where the truth might emerge. Uh, in any event, uh, one person uh, clearly um, submerged in falsehood is uh, are the current occupant of the White House. I've been uh, reading... Uh, couple of books in that area this past week, State of Denial uh, by uh, Bob Woodward. This is the third part of the trilogy uh, involving uh, Bush at War, which is the main theme of uh, the book. And uh, I've also finished the Ron Suskind book, uh, The 1% Solution, uh, Deep Inside America's, uh, let's see... Uh, it's got a kind of a funny subtitle. I'll just call it the 1% uh, solution. But basically, it's deep inside America's uh, um, analysis of its enemies since 9-11 by Ron Suskind. And uh, what is very interesting from these books is how, and what we learn is, is uh, in conjunction with, for instance, the Thomas Ricks book, Fiasco, and the Michael Gordon um, book uh, about um, Cobra too, which is more, these are more military analysis, is this somewhat profound um, state of, of tension that, that existed in the White House uh, on, on the... Uh, shall we say on the on the uh, march to war, um, Powell and Donald Rumsfeld were rivals. They didn't like each other. Um, Dick Cheney emerges as a as a shadowy figure. In fact, at one point in Suskind's book, early in Bush's presidency, uh, Bush actually asked Cheney. And I'll just quote from it, uh, page seventy nine. 
says, in the spring of 2002, Bush asked Cheney to pull back a little bit at the big meetings to give the president room to move and to take uh, charge. Bush asked Cheney not to offer him advice in crowded rooms. Do that privately. And Cheney did. Condoleezza Rice, of course, is head of the National Security uh, agency emerges sort of as a, a handholder for Bush. She's not really uh, debating and sorting out the policy debates that were occurring. We have this tension between Rice and Tenet and this rivalry between, for instance, Richard Armitage and uh, Doug Fife. And Rumsfeld has warned repeatedly uh, before the war uh, ever started that the post-war planning was uh, in shambles and that Doug Fife was screwing everything up. Uh, For instance, uh, it's fascinating from the Woodward book to really learn that the president's main interest uh, in the war in Iraq was political, that he saw the war in Iraq as part of a almost, uh, shall we say, divine uh, event. 9-11 was a divine event that um, Bush believed that he had been chosen uh, by the creator and this is what is frightening, um, to uh, lead our, our next generation. Woodward writes, uh, Bush's approval rating after 9-11 soared from 55 to 90 percent. The president pretended not to be interested when Rove showed him the numbers, but it was understood that Rove's job was to make sure that broad support was used effectively. In the past, when the public rallied around the president in times of crisis, the boost in popularity lasted seven to ten months, Rove calculated. Bush made it clear that his presidency was now going to be about 9-11, just like his father's generation was called during World War II. Now our generation is being called, he told Rove. Bush's father had enlisted in the Navy in 1942 on his 18th birthday, etc., etc., and it had been a formative experience. The younger Bush and Rove had never fought in a war. I would just parenthetically add that they both had opportunities to do so, but uh, for various reasons did not. But now they felt they were being called in their 50s. Quote, I'm here for a reason, Bush told Rove, and this is going to be how we're going to be judged. This was the new plan. And then Woodward details how on November 21st of 2001, um, a couple of months after 9-11 and about six weeks after the Afghanistan war had started, 71 days, Bush asked Rumsfeld to start updating the war plan for Iraq. Let's get started on this, Bush recalled saying that day, and get Tommy Franks looking at what it would take to protect America by removing Saddam Hussein if we have to. So uh, this is just further confirmation that the Bush uh, war plan in Iraq uh, well preceded um, the publicly revealed uh, uh, justification for when it started. And indeed, indeed Ron Suskind's uh, book, The 1% Solution, um, goes into a early meeting Um, in 2001, in which uh, Condoleezza Rice opens up a cabinet meeting uh, in late January of 2001 uh, with a discussion of 
how Saddam Hussein is destabilizing the region. Uh, this, by the way, at a time when Saddam Hussein was well contained with uh, um, no-fly zones, uh, UN sanctions. There were, were not UN inspectors on the ground at the time, but they uh, later uh, were allowed back in in 2002. And it's interesting that on February 16th of 2001, uh, 21 days into uh, Bush's presidency, two dozen U.S. and British planes bombed 20 radar and uh, armored centers inside Iraq enforcing the no-fly zones. Uh, these were the largest uh, air attacks, strikes is the word that uh, Woodward uses, in two years. Um, so this was almost an um, indicator that war with Iraq would eventually emerge as part of a Bush plan. And what's interesting in the post-mortem analysis of Tony Blair is how most of the media, uh, particularly the British media, because I listened to quite a bit of BBC uh, last week regarding uh, evaluating Blair, kept hearkening on this, uh, you know, how Air Blair's entire legacy would be tarnished by Iraq, and that without this Iraq debacle, Blair actually probably would have gone down as quite a successful prime minister due to, uh, for instance, the economic, steady economic gains that Britain has experienced, though they certainly have some inflation and debt problems on the horizon. Bush, I mean, Blair had sort of, uh, you know, forged with uh, George Mitchell and Bill Clinton an Irish uh, agreement that sort of brought that conflict to an end. And, of course, Serbia and the wars in, with Serbia and Kosovo, uh, in which he was an ally of the Clinton administration, uh, will probably be viewed in history as successes uh, simply because uh, the ethnic cleansing uh, was stopped, although certainly the future of those areas still remains in doubt. And then, of course, Blair intervened in Sierra Leone to stop the killing there and participated in the Afghanistan uh, war with the United States. But Iraq, of course, is uh, going to be viewed as a failure, uh, regardless of what happens and what is so striking uh, when you go back and you read these British memoir accounts from cabinet officials is how the Blair administration was repeatedly warned uh, about where America was taking Britain and that Tony Blair, at the end of the day, did not heed those warnings and that many of these experts pointed out that uh, Blair's weakness as prime minister was that he didn't listen to his cabinet uh, uh, advisors enough and that he was this sort of spinmeister who, at the end of the day, operated... Uh, like Bill Clinton and George Bush to the extent that George Bush's main interest in the Iraq war has not really been about um, understanding the, the details of the policy because he's never really understood them. It's more about selling the idea to the American public that what emerges from all these uh, books that have evaluated the Iraq war, the mainstream books anyway, these, these four big books that were published last year, is that Bush is constantly involved in a kind of uh, marketing game, that uh, it's about selling the idea of the war to the American public. Uh, in fact, one of the advisors to uh, Condi Rice 
was uh, dispatched to um, Iraq to kind of figure out what was going on. And um, he was struck by the fact that even though he had been to Iraq repeatedly, um, and I'm missing, uh, well, I'm missing the key page uh, involving his exact quotes, but he was dispatched to Iraq repeatedly um, at the behest of Condi Rice, and that, and I'll just quote from uh, a uh, a photograph involving this man, Bob Blackwell who was the Deputy National Security Advisor. Um, and this is just in the photo caption, uh, that he was struck, he traveled regularly with Bush in the last months of the uh, presidential campaign, and he was surprised that the discussion of Iraq was through the prism of the campaign. What John Kerry might have said, or the impact that events in Iraq might have on the president's reelection. Not once... Did Bush ask Blackwell what things were like in Iraq, what he had seen, or what should be done? And indeed, at one point uh, during the uh, provisional uh, coalition uh, reign of Paul Bremer, he comes back to Washington and has a dinner with uh, his wife uh, and, and Paul Bremer have a dinner with uh, Laura Bush and George Bush. He was back in Washington, and this is on the 24th of September in the Woodward book, back in Washington briefing the president. And he reports that he told the president that he was optimistic about Iraq, but concerned about the growing insurgency, as he puts it, growing and sophisticated insurgency. Bush did not respond, he wrote. Bush displays an incredible lack of curiosity about the actual details of what's really going on in Iraq, which is why it's so frightening when you continue to hear the president insist that he needs more power, that he needs the ability to win, because Bush sees this, as I say, in this sort of messianic uh, perspective that he's been chosen by God to lead America through this crisis and that the entire uh, war uh, in Iraq at this point is not really about <laughs> success, quote unquote, but it's about the perception that we're winning, that uh, that we must keep fighting to prevail, that we can't yield to terrorism. And it's fascinating how this Munich uh, appeasement analogy keeps popping up in both uh, the political problems of George Bush and Tony Blair. Um, Bush is repeatedly warned before the war starts about the significance of the post-war planning, and what emerges is a sort of haphazard, um, as uh, Bob Woodward calls it at one point, and I think he was quoting George Tenet here, that the Post-war planning was like a pickup game of basketball, that there was this sort of uh, very um, disorganized sense about what was going on. But the, the key thing was that Donald Rumsfeld kept insisting, I'm in charge, I'm in control, and he was a control freak. And in fact, he wasn't in charge. He replaced uh, Jay Garner uh, shortly after... Um, the, the statues of Saddam Hussein had fallen, and that he had only appointed Garner uh, in January of uh, 2003, shortly before the war started. And uh, this 
emerges as one of the great failures of the war, of course, because um, Rumsfeld and Bush are repeatedly warned by, you know, junior advisors in the national security apparatus. At one point, uh, a uh, advisor named Herbitz comes to Rumsfeld and uh, tells him that Fife is screwing things up seriously. The fighting between state and defense was so bad that interagency um, meetings were at times a little more than shouting matches, and that post-war planning was so fiercely off track that it required the secretary's personal intervention. Uh, later, um, he's warned again uh, about these problems. And Garner, of course, uh, is one of the leaders of the so-called pickup basketball game, and he submits a budget document to Rumsfeld dated the 27th of February uh, with the, the gaping problem that his group only has $27 million and that uh, he saw uh, first-year expenses for reorganizing Iraq at $10 billion. And he asked Rumsfeld, well, where's this money coming from? The estimate, in fact, he gave uh, is between 10 and $12 billion for the first year, all told. Uh, I'm talking to Rumsfeld about these numbers, and I'm quoting from Woodward again. Um, Rumsfeld said, well, what do you think it will cost? He uh, told Rumsfeld it will cost billions of dollars. And Rumsfeld's response is, well, if you think we're spending our money on that, you're wrong, Rumsfeld said. In a most sweeping assertion, he said, we're not going to do that. We're going to spend their money on rebuilding their country. And Garner, of course, is flabbergasted. Garner was selected, by the way, because he had apparently been a fairly successful administrator uh, during the first Persian Gulf War in a thing called Operation Provide Comfort, which uh, was involved in helping the Kurdish areas of, of uh, Iraq uh, deal with the aftermath of that war. But all of his advice is ignored. And, of course, Bremer comes in and he promptly uh, disbands the, uh, the army. And then uh, in a policy of so-called debathification that was modeled on uh, America's denazification, uh, got rid of all the bathists in uh, Iraq. And this essentially dismantled the Iraqi government because as all the experts pointed out, to be a participant in the Iraqi government during the Saddam Hussein years, de facto meant that you had to be a Bathist. It was a loyalty test. And what is so ironic is that so much of the incompetence in the Bush administration's handling of post-war Iraq is the same problem. You had to be a loyalist. You had to be loyal to the president. If you weren't, quote, on the team, you couldn't, you, you know, you couldn't be with the team because you, you had to spout the party line no matter what. And we're seeing this emerge, by the way, in this uh, Alberto Gonzalez scandal. This uh, deputy aide who, uh, stunningly, is a graduate of Regent University, a law school graduate of Regent University, the Pat Robertson uh, Law School uh, out east. Um, her, her main uh, uh, criteria for judging uh, these U.S. attorneys was loyalty to the Bush program. They weren't concerned about what the actual numbers were or any of the results. The, the key question was loyalty to the Bush 
policy, regardless of whether the policy had any uh, validity whatsoever. So it'll be interesting to see how that, um, Goodling is her name, uh, Monica Goodling, I think. It's ironic that she's called Monica. Uh, maybe we'll have two presidents uh, brought down by uh, a woman named Monica. And I don't know, is that a soap opera name? It's, I'm kind of puzzled by that whole thing. So uh, it, it, I'll uh, report more on this uh, this Bush thing as we're now beginning to see things coming to a head over the Iraq policy. It's beginning to look like September is going to be the day of doom. And the real question is, what are we going to do in September when Petraeus comes back with a mixed report about the results of the surge? The surge has obviously been a total disaster uh, so far. It's no, no success whatsoever. There, yes, there have been some minor improvements in certain areas, but then there's been upticks in violence in other areas. The bottom line, the Bush administration bought into the Donald Rumsfeld Dick Cheney theory of transformation. They never had enough troops on the ground. They were warned repeatedly by top military advisors that they would need more troops, and they ignored the military advice. End of story. Uh, so much for fighting wars as if they're pickup basketball games. But that is the way the Bush uh, presidential uh, tenure operates. Now, real quickly on Tony Blair, uh, what struck me about some of the British uh, analysis of Tony Blair is the sort of strange, strange emergence of how the British uh, political system is beginning to kind of morph into the American political system. Um, and that Tony Blair, because he was such a, a good friend of Bill Clinton back in the early 90s when he came into power, emulated uh, uh, Blair's uh, Clinton's style in some ways, that he was uh, ultimately perceived by the public as a spinmeister, and that the, one of the reasons that Tony Blair could see the writing on the wall in terms of uh, you know announcing his resignation, which he did, interestingly, uh, over... Uh, nine months ago, I think it was back in September when he first told the public that he would resign uh, within a year, is that um, the Iraq war is what brings Blair down. Blair, you know, for the most part, has been a fairly successful um, prime minister. He's uh, the longest serving labor um, prime minister in, I think, uh, British history. And uh, one expert said that at the end of the day, Tony Blair will be remembered as being a nice guy. Uh, and they took uh, great exception with Blair's assertion that Britain had become a more polite society under his tenureship uh, because he cited uh, economic gains and uh, the fact that we're a more polite society as one of his um, legacies. And I suspect over the next... Uh, six or seven weeks, however long he's uh, still around. I think he, his official date of uh, departure is the 27th of June. He obviously wants to get one more of these G8 summits under his belt. But I do sense that Tony Blair is uh, going to distance himself uh, from Bush on some big issues, the global warming issue, for instance. He's going to go out swinging. He's going to burnish his image on the global warming issue, uh, perhaps more... Um, economic and uh, humanitarian aid for Africa. Don't be surprised if he becomes an advocate of uh, some sort of muscular military intervention in Darfur. And I think he will try and patch up uh, any uh, lingering problems with the European um, allies like Germany 
and France, since they are now both under new uh, leadership under in recent from recent elections, and that uh, at the end of the day, Blair's big downfall was this <clears throat> buying into the theory that there is a special relationship between uh, Great Britain and the United States. Um, I believe the British believe this more than we do, uh, interestingly enough, because I just finished a biography of Dean Acheson recently, and one of the fascinating um, sort of historical things that I learned from this book, a meticulously researched book, by the way, I'll have to come back to it at some point, because it's, uh, it's interesting how a biography of a powerful uh, figure for five or six years in the American government. You can learn so much about the times that we uh, lived in back then, which uh, were the late 40s. Dean Acheson was an undersecretary of state in the early parts of the Truman administration and then became his secretary of state uh, when Truman surprisingly won re-election in 1948. And Acheson, of course, is an architect of this... Uh, Cold War uh, containment policy. And at one point, it's very interesting how the Truman administration reneges on agreements that were made by FDR regarding atomic uh, material, uh, regarding the uh, atomic arsenals. Because at the time, the United States was getting most of its nuclear material from the Belgian Congo, uh, which later became Zaire and is, is now where, uh, in fact, the greatest war on Earth continues. Uh, an estimated 4 million people have actually died in the Congo uh, in the past five or six years, uh, far, far greater than Darfur. Uh, but the American uh, media has uh, no uh, interest in the situation in the Congo, and it's a very difficult situation. This is where Mobutu, uh, his, his corruption in which he... Allegedly pretty much pocketed about $2 billion of American uh, military and economic aid over the years, ended up in his uh, Swiss bank accounts and various uh, European uh, Riviera properties and castles and that sort of thing. It's interesting how Acheson early on reneges on these nuclear agreements and that he doesn't see that there is a special relationship between America and Britain. There indeed had been a special relationship between Winston Churchill and FDR, but Acheson goes out of his way while Secretary of State to distinctly tell, um, you know, he, he believes that the British uh, are way past their prime. In fact, he's got some famous quote that Britain is still searching for a role in the world at one point that indeed angered the British government and that the American uh, nuclear agreement with Britain was essentially cut off and that they no longer were going to share um, uranium uh, with Britain. And this, of course, motivated Britain to go on out on their own to develop their own nuclear program. And uh, another side agreement that FDR had made was that the United States agreed to share uh, any decision to use the atomic bomb. Uh, fortunately for the world, that has been avoided uh, since uh, the fateful events of August 1945. Um, but it's interesting how this special relationship is uh, more a thing that Britain perceives as... Uh, being in force than the Americans do. Uh, there was a lot of discussion during the Thatcher years that she had a special relationship with Ronald Reagan. Indeed, um, in fact, one of the reasons that 
Alexander Haig resigned uh, early in the Reagan presidency was he was troubled by the indifference with which America approached uh, Britain's Falkland Wars, because at the time the uh, Reagan administration was using Argentina to train the Contras, and they didn't want to mess that up. So that the uh, initial dispute between Britain and Argentina, the Reagan administration actually took a kind of a a hands-off approach to the problem when um, the Brito, the, the Anglophiles in the American government, like Haig, were outraged that the special relationship was not being maintained. So it's fascinating, I think, if uh, for, uh, maybe if there's a student out there, to analyze this post-war uh, special relationship between uh, America and Great Britain, because I think you would find a lot of examples in which there was no such thing. Uh, Harold Wilson, for instance, repeatedly warned America about the perils of uh, their policy in Indochina. And Britain, of course, uh, wisely did not support any of America's involvement in Indochina, uh, going out of their way to uh, tell them, this is a big mistake that you're making, you have no idea what you're getting into, and indeed we didn't. Um, And it's uh, quite troubling that we're repeating uh, these same mistakes in Iraq while we pursue the mythical war on terror that, of course, uh, is uh, at the end of the day going to emerge more as propaganda uh, more than anything. Well, we're running out of time down here on Gray Matters. I wanted to very quickly, uh, obviously the big news of today, uh, especially for the state of Michigan, is this announcement about Chrysler. Um, It's interesting that Jon Snow, uh, recently Secretary-Treasurer, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, who uh, basically held office between uh, Paul O'Neill, who wrote a scathing uh, memoir regarding the Bush administration, co-written by Ron Suskind, an author I was talking about earlier, is part of this uh, this group service that's uh, involved in this uh, buyout of Chrysler. This is obviously going to have a huge impact on the area, and job cuts uh, are, are in the offing uh, without any doubt. These uh, so-called private equity companies are... Hardline capitalists, uh, they have no interest in uh, anything uh, else. So we'll uh, discuss that issue more in, in upcoming weeks. And I certainly want to uh, return to these unemployment numbers that came out uh, just a week ago because they show a, um, as I predicted, um, <laughs> March and February's um, previously announced job totals, I'll just close with this, overstated job growth in those months by a total of 26,000. At the time the March numbers came out, I told all listeners down here that these numbers made no sense, um, that it's suspicious that there are all these government jobs being created, uh, because when you look around uh, the country, government, uh, state governments are confronted with budget uh, problems galore in many states, and uh, there is no evidence of any government jobs being created. I suggested that the construction jobs that were, quote, created uh, in an obvious real estate slowdown were obviously construction jobs in Iraq uh, with the Blackwater Corporation, um, uh, another dark and uh, dingy uh, legacy of the Bush war on terror. Uh, The war on terror has benefited uh, very few people at the expense of very many but that, uh, I think, is a, a legacy that both Ronald Reagan and George Bush can be proud that they've upheld over uh, their presidencies. And uh, I guess 
Well, I'm I'm looking at our engineer. We are, I guess, out of time. It's a little after 7 p.m. Our clocks apparently are correct. Do stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling is coming up next right here on WCBN, FM, and Arbor.